Hello and welcome. We are continuing the Olivet Discourse through Matthew 24 into 25 with an overarching theme of preparation for the day of the Lord, the coming King, with an emphasis on mission. To recap part one, Jesus foretold judgment against Jerusalem. The disciples then respond with questions of when and what sign, connecting it with his coming at the end of the age. Expounding upon the Old Testament prophets, Jesus referred to the first half of the final week of years as the beginning of the birth pains, pointing to false Christs, war, famine and earthquakes. Then the second half of the week of years, the Great Tribulation, as the birth pains intensify that commences with the primary midweek sign, the abomination of desolation, listing false Christs, false prophets, death, martyrdom, apostasy, and the gospel going to all nations as a prerequisite before the end. And finally, his coming, which involves celestial signs before the sign of the Son of Man, who comes publicly, suddenly, dramatically in power to gather his elect and rescue his people. He then gave three pictures of being caught out on that day. And now and today, we have three parables about preparing to meet the master before judgment of the nations. Let's get straight into it. The first parable begins at verse 45. We're still in Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Israel is the first servant of God as priests among the nations who are called to serve as God's representative to share the light of the true God with the Gentiles. Gentiles who become spiritual offspring of Abraham are grafted into that calling of servanthood. Now it can be said that Jesus is servant Israel, representative of Israel, the true faithful and wise servant of the Father. We have the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Even the Targum Jonathan, the Babylonian Aramaic translation, uses the phrase servant Messiah. But it seems more than that. Jesus himself asks who, as in who foreshadowed me that was counted as such. It's a riddle. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? It sounds remarkably like the words of Pharaoh who said, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house. That's Genesis 41. You know he is speaking to Joseph. Servant here can be rendered slave. Joseph was sold into slavery and became the person in charge of the master's house. We recall Pharaoh's dreams of seven fat cows followed by seven thin cows and seven plump ears of grain followed by seven thin ears of grain. The thin ones ate the fat ones. Joseph interpreted it as seven years of great plenty followed by seven years of great famine. It was God who would bring it about. Joseph, who was then put in position of prime minister, then advised to store away one-fifth of the land's produce during the seven years of plenty. Joseph didn't have faith and do nothing. He didn't have faith and was unwise. He didn't say, I'll trust God to provide for me while I sit on my new position of power. He was wise to prepare for the coming famine. He put his faith and wisdom into action. He had a God-given mission that would mean the rescue of his brethren that was as simple as storing food. Let's not overcomplicate mission. Storing food on this scale would have entailed 
logistical difficulties and managing staff and navigating faith among worldly rulers with their many gods. It's going to get complicated anyway, so don't overcomplicate your mission strapline. It can be as simple as storing food. You know, we can be super busy and super spiritual rather than simple and practical, but perhaps more useful for God's purposes. The appearance of ethereal preparation versus practical, diligent preparation. Joseph, of course, is a type of Messiah. We can learn more from the story of Joseph if this is who Jesus is pointing to. It is significant that Genesis chapters 37 through to 50 are about Joseph because it contains foreshadows of the end. Joseph was put in charge of storing the grain, saving many lives. But the grain put away didn't belong to the Egyptian people. It was taxed to the king's government. And then when famine hit, we read in Genesis 47, Joseph gathered up all the money in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Once their money was gone, Joseph took their livestock for grain. And after this, they sold their land and then themselves as slaves. Pharaoh, with the help of Joseph, took complete control of Egypt, acquiring all businesses, land, and put the people into slavery. So when I hear the phrase, you will own nothing and be happy, and there's a promotion of universal grain credit, our ears should prick up. Interestingly, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting was taking place as I prepared this video. All assets taken and all enslaved. The Egyptian Great Reset looks very much like the Great Reset that Klaus Schwab and friends are planning, which is all out in the open. Pharaoh took advantage of a natural disaster and drought that led to famine to reset Egypt, which symbolized the worldly world. Today, it is the same, except they can cause so-called pandemics, economic collapse, disasters to leverage power. What is interesting, and perhaps the Lord will speak to you about this, we read in verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. There is also an uncomfortable aspect to the rise of Joseph. Joseph went from a man in charge of Pharaoh's house to almost the right-hand man of a totalitarian leader. Joseph's power increased greatly as Pharaoh's did with the accumulation of land and wealth. No sin is recorded as such, but although Pharaoh is his master, he does assist in enslaving the people to a communist state. Perhaps there is a hint here that to be a faithful and wise servant in and among the political spheres is to walk a fine line, especially when the church and state is entangled like it is in the UK. The Israelites fared well from the family reunion onwards, but after Joseph died, with the great power that Pharaoh's house now held, they too were enslaved by a new king who tried to snuff them out, killing the baby boys. Notice too, as the power of government increases today, there is a depopulation campaign to reduce the number of births to save the planet, apparently, offering DIY abortion pills during lockdown. As authoritarianism increases, they will come for the vulnerable and uncompliant. The good news is that Jesus will lead a second exodus. We are told that famine is coming in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. He opened the third seal, a quarter of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, famine and pestilence. Like the days of Joseph, there will be a famine of wheat or barley specifically, coupled with astronomical inflation. Will there be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, which is the 70th week of Daniel?
If so, God will bring it about. Are we currently in the seven years of plenty? It was a famine in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, but also the surrounding nations, including Egypt, which, as we've said, can be representative of the world. Joseph said, put a fifth away, should we? The Economist published an article, The Coming Food Catastrophe. Take a closer look at that image. This is last week's publication. We are told it's coming, and we've seen of late how interconnected the world is with supply chains and so forth. And we learnt the ripple effect will be global. Why would we not prepare physically, practically? If we are hit by famine and we have no reserves, Jesus is going to be like, well, I said there would be famine. (laughs) There is the strength of man, and then there is foolishness. The UK government is currently handing out lump sums to farmers to leave or retire early. Similar patterns are occurring in the US. Especially those in leadership, we know that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a famine of the word of God, and the flock needs feeding now. But there will come a famine of edible food, and they will need to be fed. Don't be more spiritual than God. It's not one or the other, but both spiritual and physical needs. It's the master's house who are to be fed, the household of God primarily. The mark of the beast is coming so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. If the previous two years has taught us something, it's that there will be people who do not want the mark, not for religious reasons, but for lack of trust in authority, but have no food. Your physical preparation, including food, will be your chance to witness. When diligent preparation meets opportunity, fruits of mission is inevitable. Jesus fed 5,000 men besides women and children because a little boy prepped five barley loaves and two fish. Elijah stayed with a widow and her son during a three and a half year drought and famine. Sound familiar? And God multiplied provisions when she gave in faith. She gave her last meal for herself and her son to a stranger. Her flour and oil miraculously didn't run out. God provides after faithful generosity. In contrast, the wicked servant is bored of waiting, thinking he has time to get drunk. How did he buy the booze? He's taken the mark of the beast. Drunkenness, of course, means more than the effects of alcohol, but the spiritual lethargy brought on by indulging in the world's treats. He missed the signs. He's unprepared. He's mocking those who won't take the mark and are hungry. He's a hypocrite. Flagrant rebellion is not going to go unnoticed. He will be cut, weep, and gnash. Jesus delegates responsibilities and care of his household to his servants. In the process of watching and readiness, he expects diligent labouring. Faithfulness does not look like sitting on a sofa, eating crisps and drinking coke, googling your favourite prophecy teachers, no matter how good your colourful timeline is. (laughs) Nor does it look like 24-hour meditation between vegan meals without practical application. The unbeliever is characterized by failing to watch, be ready or laboring diligently. These will be cursed to the lake of fire. Believers are characterized by watchfulness, readiness, diligence. These will be blessed in the coming kingdom. If we prepare to feed the flock at the proper time, God will provide the food at the proper time. Through tribulation, the most fruitful time of mission is to come, a time when he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. That's Joel 2. Jesus is asking us, what kind of servant are we? Are we impatient with God's plan and neglect God-given responsibilities? Are we active in eagerly waiting for the return of our master? 
Then we are faced with two longer parables that emphasize these same points of preparedness, watchfulness, readiness, diligence. The parable of the ten virgins concentrates on the first two. Remember, chapter divisions were inserted later, but his discourse continues into chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And this is where we pause to bask in the assumption that we are the wise ones. <laughs> but keep reading. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's first identify the characters of the parable. The bridegroom we know is Jesus. He identifies himself as the bridegroom several times throughout the Gospels, in part to reveal he is Yahweh, the God and bridegroom of Sinai. The use of virgins is another way to communicate a collective bride before marriage consumption. The scriptures, such as Jeremiah 14 and 18, use virginity to depict God's people who are in covenant relationship with him. Of note, in Jeremiah 14, the virgin daughter, Israel, were under judgment from God that would eventually include the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah warns in this chapter of a time of drought and famine. The past points to the future. To the Corinthians, Paul would refer to the church, Jew and joining Gentile, as a virgin. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11. I understand the last generation of Christians are portrayed in this parable as ten virgins. And if true, the time delay cannot mean between the comings, but a period of waiting of the final week of years of this age. The term virgins indicates their status in the community, not their spiritual condition. They profess Christ. You can sense the concern and the friction on Paul's pen between the pure and the deceived. A Jewish wedding is being compared to the coming kingdom. Why? Because the marriage feast is a culmination of the marriage covenant initiated at Sinai. It helps then to understand a first century Jewish wedding. Now typically there were four stages. Firstly, there is the arrangement. A bride price is paid from the father of the groom to the father of the bride, once an agreement was made. And frequently, this arrangement would take place when the bride and groom were children. As adults, the couple exchanged vows and were then considered legally married. Secondly, there is the fetching of the bride. The groom, along with friends, would then surprise the bride by going to her home to fetch her and bring her back to his hometown and the place that he has prepared for her, often attached to his father's house. This would have been at least a year after the arrangement, but it could be many years after. During the wait, the bride would prepare her garments and be watchful because the father of the groom would announce the start of the ceremony to the blast of a shofar. Thirdly, there is the mikveh. The bride is led into the immersion pool, the mikveh, for ritual cleansing. And once purified, the wedding ceremony could take place that involved only close friends and family. 
Lastly then, the wedding feast proper, which would last many days, and the invite was extended to many more people for the feast than the ceremony. Referring to Messiah and his bride, the church then, firstly, God the Father arranged the bride payment by the blood of his son. We made a vow to the groom and prepared our fine linen garments. As Revelation 19 says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Secondly, the fetching of the bride will take place at the rapture resurrection to bring his bride, the church, to his heavenly home. Thirdly, the wedding ceremony will take place, I understand, in the heights of the heavens as they are declared righteous and clothed with white robes. Revelation 7 depicts this scene. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And we could say no one can ascend to the Father to walk down the aisle as the spotless bride except with Jesus as bridegroom. Fourthly, the wedding feast, which is not just symbolic but characteristic of the kingdom. An actual feast and celebration will then take place on earth in Israel. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. I look forward to that. This parable is about who will and who will not participate in the wedding feast in the coming kingdom. All the virgins had lamps because they're unsure if the groom would come in the day or the night. They do not know the day or hour. In some sense, they all appeared ready. Even the foolish held lamps. They're part of the team. They all heard and are holding the same message of light, doing what others did in the community, but not really believing it. They showed the outward readiness, but did not have the inner readiness, professing to be watchful, but not preparing to be ready. What is the oil? If we peer into the prophets, such as Zechariah 4, oil can be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The oil could point to various realities, but the emphasis is readiness or the lack thereof. Five are classed as wise because they have the Holy Spirit in them. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom. Letters before and after your name do not equate to wisdom. Wisdom may set you on a path that includes titles and status and influence, but you cannot reverse engineer it. Knowing the Lord through the indwelling of the Spirit results in virgin-like wisdom. Five are not sealed with the Holy Spirit. They are fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. When asked if he believes in God, our Prime Minister quoted this psalm. It is true, but is he a fool? They do not express the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They took no oil because while they are members of the church in possession of a lamp, they are not in covenant relationship with God. Wise virgins are informed virgins. It would be foolish to set out on mission without being informed. Ground zero informed mission means studying his word in spiritual preparation with an expectation that the good shepherd will feed his flock at the proper time, unsealing the words of the prophets. Jesus has already referenced Daniel 12 and this parable alludes to it again. Daniel shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And verse 9, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Readying the oil could be quantified as an increase in knowledge and understanding poured into the wise watchers. Wise servants prep physically, wise virgins prep spiritually also. Wheat was physical prep, oil is spiritual prep. We should be both prepping both. 
The foolish virgins are those who resist, they mock, they bat eyelids at the increase in knowledge and understanding unsealed at this time. They haven't just labelled eschatology a distraction, but they have no concern for basic preparation to stand firm during tribulation, falling to the wayside. There will come a time when the wise must separate from the foolish virgins, so not to dirty their garments. There is a necessary tension between the parable in Matthew 13, let both the weeds and the wheat grow together until harvest, and the warning Paul gives for what fellowship has light with darkness. So we take people at their word as professing Christ, yet it is becoming more obvious who are the foolish weeds. Churches openly promoting the LGBT agenda and holding Muslim festivals. Kick out the wolves, careful not to pull up the wheat. Paul expounds on the midnight cry with the cry of command in 1 Thessalonians 4. Some connect the midnight cry with the timing of the abomination of desolation, but Paul's allusion identifies the midnight cry with the rapture resurrection translation. All ten were asleep. I would go fishing in France with my brother and a couple of friends each year in which we hire a lake with a log cabin to fish for carp. This is before kids, I haven't been for years. Early one morning, I cast out my rod and I sat on my bed chair and in waiting, I fell asleep. And I was woken to the screams of my bite alarm. And so I got up as fast as I could. My rod was only, what, six, eight feet away. And I stepped forwards and wham, I fell to the ground. I must have slept on my leg in a strange way that meant it was completely numb. I couldn't feel a thing. And so I immediately got up quickly. I stepped forward, but wham, I fell to the ground again. And again, for the third time, I got up and fell to the ground again. It was like a comedy sketch. <laughs> and when I reached my rod finally to strike, the fish was gone. If the body is asleep, we cannot respond as we ought to, as we're required to, as we may even want to when we're awake. They all trimmed their lamps even the foolish. They all wanted to participate in the bridal procession to meet the bridegroom. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up feeling like a million bucks. <laughs> I'm grumpy, I'm drowsy, until I've had a cup of tea. Very British. But not only that, if the body is asleep, which Jesus predicts, or it appears fine and be attached to the body, but if some of the members are completely numb, we cannot function as one properly, even when we're so close and right at the gates, and we miss not the catch of the day, but the catch of the Lord. How can you look up if you are asleep? How can you look up if your neck is stiff and numb? How can the church body look up as one if we are consumed with the activities and the treasures of the world? All 10 were asleep, which could mean that less than 5% were awake, if you count one-tenth as a collective, meaning more than 5% asleep would label that unit asleep. But that could be looking for something that's not there, and it could be pride talking, trying to find a way to distance ourselves from the sleepy. Yet Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom his master finds awake when he comes. Perhaps opening the door ajar to a tiny minority who remain awake. To reinforce the sleepy aspect, the pattern of sleeping would be acted out by the disciples in the following chapter in the Garden of Gethsemane, as they fail to watch while Jesus steps away for a while. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Oil-burning lamps were essential for an evening event. It would be embarrassing at the least to run out of oil. You've had plenty of time to prepare for the ceremony. It was too late to run an errand. The door shut is a reference to God shutting the door on the Ark of Noah, sealing the salvaged with no chance of entrance for the rest. I do not know you. 
a sobering warning. Is Jesus saying that half the professing church will not enter the kingdom of God? I think so. When I look at the church today, it doesn't surprise me. Jesus had already warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Did we not prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? I never knew you. Do Jewish rabbis do work in the name of Jesus? No. Professing Christians do. How utterly tragic that people go to church their whole lives. They help out with the kids' work. They're part of the mission team. They think they know him, but they do not know him. Friends, the bride is in bad shape. If my wife rocked up on our wedding day and she was drunk and covered in sick and disheveled, I'd say, I don't know that person. I don't know who that person is. The woman I knew was excited to get married and excited to prepare for the day. The bride must awake and sober up before the end and recovering from the worst hangover of her life will be challenging. Why would we watch if we're not to know the day nor the hour? Well, the parable of the fig tree, the picture of the thief, the wise servant, the primary sign midway through the week. A watch was a three-hour time frame. The fault of the householder was his ignorance of the three-hour time frame in which the thief was coming. We are commanded to discover the basic time frame of the final week of history. The media are trying to distract you. They want you to keep watch of what they want. A slap at the Oscars. Don't waste precious time keeping watch of that. They want to drown out the voice of the shepherd. We read in Exodus of the Passover. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Exodus 12. Jesus' affirmation and illusion of this tradition would be evident with Passover just two days away. At the Last Supper, the Passover meal, he says... I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Passover feast points backwards and forwards to salvation and the marriage feast in the kingdom. Do this in remembrance of me is a call to continue the tradition of the eschatological banquet under the new covenant. To drink is to watch. Watch for the appointed time the Father has fixed by his own authority, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, akin to removing all the leaven from our homes. The bride's preparation does not come through a casual study of his word, lukewarm obedience, nor procrastination. It does not come through mocking those who seek understanding, nor patronising those who resist and play down his warnings. It does not come through insurrections, woke activism, or conserving the status quo. We are to watch with readiness to be rescued from Egypt. You cannot partake in the mission to cross the Red Sea and have one foot back in Egypt. That life must be drowned. To watch is to guard your mission. The devil and his minions are on mission to thwart your activities. Watch while we work. To watch is to awaken the human heart. The apocalyptic nature of the discourse, a woman in labour, the flood of Noah, the celestial wonders, a thief in the night, is intended to defibrillate the human heart, to waken her from that comfortable posture with the depravity of this sinful age. Your church was shut down for the better part of two years to shock you from the rhythms of lethargic posture. It's in his kindness. Be ready however long it takes. Be encouraged. If you watch and are ready, you will not miss the bridegroom. 
Be blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Revelation 16 ties these themes together. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. He moves from a parable about the church to a parable concerning the people of Israel, the parable of the talents. This is about settling accounts with the Jews. Then the sheep and goats is about settling accounts with Gentiles. The former relates to Ezekiel 20 and the latter to Joel 3. Jesus designed such parables to instill the fear of God concerning the coming judgment to the Jew first. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. The man or master represents Jesus. The servants in this context make up the collective servant Israel. What is the property entrusted to them? Well, they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. And perhaps above all promises, the land inheritance. It's the master's land. He's chosen to give it to the people of Jacob, but the Mosaic law is still in play, hence the great tribulation to come. The law was given as instructions to steward God's property as tenants. It is promised to Abraham and offspring, but Abraham has not inherited the land yet. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. A talent was the largest denomination of money equivalent to 20 years of income. Talents are not symbolic of the gospel or spiritual gifts and should not be confused with Britain's Got Talent. Did they gain more gospels? No. Did they gain more spiritual gifts? No. The master's rewards, consisting of greater responsibility, points to an understanding that talents should be thought of in the most general terms, a disciple's fulfillment of their responsibilities. Then he went away. The journey, you've guessed, is to heaven and back, consistent with teaching on Messiah of two distinct missions. He who had received the five talents went at once, notice he didn't delay, and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Similar to the parable of the faithful and wise servant, the emphasis is diligence, not in physical preparation as such, but in faithful stewardship. Are we industrious for him or for us? How many sermons are about how to get that new job promotion? In fellowship, are we taken most by each other's industry and the trappings of those industries? If you met Paul, would you be asking about last year's tent-making revenue? <laughs> it might be out of curiosity, but I'm not going to be talking tents with Paul all night. <laughs> Gain for the master is our focus. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice that five returning ten is commended and rewarded in the same way as two returning four. It's not about how much responsibility you are given, but how you respond with what you have been given. Whatever level of responsibility you have been assigned, you are expected to faithfully make gains corresponding to that assignment. No more, no less. If you steward your assignment well now, you'll be rewarded with a bigger assignment then. A tribulationous assignment now, a joyous assignment then. 
He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Although he only received one talent, he was required to match it. He gained nothing for his master, rather referring to him as a hard man demanding, violent, harsh. His twisted perception reveals his own attitude and the false god he created in his own image. Based on his twisted perception, he reveals his twisted motive, not a healthy fear of God, a twisted fear of a master he'd made up in his head. Because he didn't know him. If he had known his master, he would have been industrious for him. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel is bad news to the unfaithful. He fails to understand that fruitfulness is a mark of his master's power and grace, but it is the result of the servant's diligence for his master to reap. The owner has a right to harvest on his land wherever he chooses and gather where he didn't sow. It all belongs to him. The wicked servant is classed as worthless and sharply and ultimately rebuked. As Ezekiel penned, I will enter into judgment with you face to face. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. For his inactivity, forfeiting even what he has into the darkness of the lake, alone, scared, hearing the sounds of weeping and gnashing of teeth, if not his own. The lessons are both encouraging and sobering. Although primarily to the Jewish people, Gentiles too can apply the principles as well as provoking the Jew to jealousy. We could ask, are we bitter that we haven't been given more and therefore slothful in self-pity? Have we been given much but we're cruising in luxury? Do the groans of the curse mean that we're active before others but secretly meet our hedonistic desires, satisfying our taste buds, sexual urges, passions of shiny goods and holiday experiences to anaesthetize personal hurts or claim his inheritance before time? The price tag on those things are weighty. Do we seek the master's face to discover his purpose for our own lives? Could we stand before our master and say, I faithfully fulfilled the mission that you gave? Would he say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Notice with all these parables, it's not the obvious ones who don't enter the kingdom. The list of the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the thieves, the drunkards, the greedy, these are the baseline exclusions. But these parables are saying it can be the ones who appear religious, the ones that sit with us. There is a genuine danger of becoming the wicked servant, the foolish virgin and the slothful manager. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Jesus addressed the church, then the Jew and now the Gentile. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then follows when. When he comes, then he sits as king. The kingdom does not come until the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. 
Do not confuse the present heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father with the future Davidic throne on earth. The same throne angel Gabriel said Jesus would reign upon forever. Jesus will sit on a literal throne, the Davidic throne, in literal Jerusalem during a literal thousand-year reign and beyond. When the Son of Man comes, all the false gods and false philosophies will be exposed. Everyone will know there is only one God, the God of Israel. Not any God, the Son of Man described by the Jewish scriptures. This is a judgment of who will enter the millennial kingdom of those who remain alive. Now, when does this judgment take place? Well, Daniel 12 mentions two extended numbers after the final three and a half years or 1,260 days. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. We have then an extended 30 days plus another 45 days. So after the rapture, resurrection, the seventh seal releases the trumpets. Six of the seven trumpets of Revelation are blown as the wrath of God is poured out on the wicked, during which time Jesus will save the remnant of Israel, retracing the steps of the Exodus as the better Moses, renewing the covenant at Sinai and into the promised land as the better Joshua, reclaiming the kingdom. The 70th week, the end of the age and the mystery of God complete. The seventh trumpet then blows and releases the seven bowls of wrath that includes the plagues that kills the armies of Armageddon. This takes place within the 30-day period. The sheep and goat judgment, which then immediately follows, takes place during the remaining 45 days that it takes to reach 1,335 days. Still with me? Jesus is expounding upon the prophecy of Joel. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Where does it take place? The valley of Jehoshaphat, the part of the Kidron Valley that separates the Temple Mount and the Old City with the Mount of Olives. So as the disciples sit on the Mount of Olives with this valley before them, Joel 3 would not be lost on them. Joel goes on to describe the armies of the Antichrist that gather in the Valley of Jezreel, and Jesus gathers them to him at the Kidron Valley. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Once divided, Jesus devours them. The Lord roars from Zion, the heavens and the earth quake. The Lord is a refuge to his people, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. The Lion of Judah kills his prey, roaring out victory. The Gentiles that attempted to exterminate the Jews are themselves exterminated. The judgment is on behalf of Israel, the firstborn of God. What is the judgment based on? Well, Joel lists four reasons. Because they have scattered them among the nations. Secondly, and have divided up my land. I'm looking at the UN, even the British administration. Thirdly, and have cast lots for my people, the enslavement of the Jewish. And fourthly, and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it, Jewish children into prostitution. The Gentiles who survived the tribulation and the trumpets and bowls will be judged on the basis of being pro-Jewish or anti-Jewish. Presenting himself as the eschatological judge, Jesus develops upon this list. To the sheep, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
during the Great Tribulation, Jews will be chased down by the Antichrist. The Gentiles who hide, who provide shelter, nourishment, clothing, medicine, are the sheep Gentiles. To the goats, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. The Gentile goats feared Antichrist over Christ. They refused to protect and provide for the Jewish people during this unparalleled persecution. Moreover, these Gentiles who have taken the mark have no sympathy with those who have not. Well, you should have taken it, shouldn't you? Can't go on holiday? You should have taken it, shouldn't you? Having read from the book of Joel, these my brothers or brethren in verse 40 is evidently the Jewish people. They are the apple of his eye. Yes, the Torah teaches leaving part of the field to feed the hungry, to treat others kindly, and mission to the poor and those in prison is important. And how much more when it's Jesus or his brethren who requires service to the Jew first and also the Greek. To the Galatians, to the Romans, when Paul uses the word poor, it is shorthand for the poor in Jerusalem from a desire to see all Israel be saved. So pointing across to the temple, Jesus says, these my brethren and not you my brethren. It is national Israel, not just messianic believers. Now, I would add that to persecute Israel, both national and grafted, is to persecute him. Matthew is written primarily to the Jewish people, so he includes this from the discourse to encourage Jewish believers that fierce tribulation will be followed by fierce vengeance and righteous judgment. I am the one who brings judgment against, but I am also the one who restores you and judges the people on your behalf. To serve national Israel before she reaches her glory is to serve the coming king. In warning about serving and shepherding his flock, Jesus draws on Ezekiel 34. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, not the sheep, the weak you have not strengthened, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered. I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. I will rescue my flock, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. You cannot claim all the blessings of Israel, but discard the flock of Israel. In his absence, he has entrusted his flock to the church. The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of this judgment. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Our future salvation is dependent upon the salvation of the Jewish nation. All the families of the earth are blessed when the great nation is established in the land by the worthy king. And we circle back to where we began with Matthew 24, the pride of man. The pride of man matures with expressed hatred of the Jew. Those who bless God's purposes for Abraham's descendants will be blessed in participation of those purposes. Those who dishonour, curse, thwart God's purposes for Abraham's descendants will be cursed and cut out of the families of the earth that shall be blessed. Destiny is somewhat self-selecting. This is the first generation whereby Israel has become a global controversy. Take a peek at the UN resolutions, for example, against Israel. While Jerusalem is not a financial or business hub, world news pivots around it. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. How has the UK nation treated them? 
Did we not recant on our promises? We severely limited Jewish immigration into their own land, turning ships around to their death. We know the time will arrive when a trial greater than the Holocaust will come. Where will we stand as nations, as leaders, as individuals? Will we labour for the Jewish people in their darkest hour? Last year, I read of the death of a bishop. He was known to some for anti-Semitism, a bishop. If you are not a friend of Israel, how can you claim to be a friend of God? Now, many doctrines can tell me where people are at, but the centrality of Israel is the litmus test. For proper discernment and prophetic voice, we must have this Abrahamic framework. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Shepherds would watch over a mixed multitude of sheep and goats who can appear very similar. Those who follow God were symbolised as sheep in the scriptures, such as Psalm 23. Sheep don't have the best vision, which is why they follow the one in front, regardless of where they are heading. The shepherd takes advantage of their hearing, calling to them with a recognisable voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John 10. Goats do not follow in the same way, wandering independently, following their own minds, sometimes to their own end. They rebel against the shepherd's voice. It is no surprise they are symbolised as the unfaithful. The main concern is individual judgment. The separation of right from left results in two groups and not nations as such. Though there is a national corporate element to it, it is not nations getting divided as such, but will our kings be held accountable by the king of kings, working his way down, ultimately ending up with two groups. The sheep will go on to populate the nations in the millennium. The saints with the backing of Jesus will rule these nations. The gospel must go out to all nations before they are gathered for judgment. Just as the gospel going out involves the individual but also national call to repentance, so too judgment includes both individual and national aspects. The right hand is associated with salvation, the righteous, those he exalts and those whose strength is in the Lord. From Psalm 118 once more. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Sheep are dealt with first. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And verse 46, the righteous into eternal life. They followed the path of Jesus, at least in regards to his people Israel. Jesus knows that in accepting the king's subjects, they will accept the king. Their blessing for obedience means they will inherit the kingdom and have a chance to include in their inheritance any children they may bring forth in the millennial kingdom, like Adam, but who lost his inheritance of the garden. They do not have glorified bodies, but are given a chance of eternal life like Adam. Jesus will call them righteous. They are not saved because of pro-Semitic actions, that would be salvation by works, but their hearts are evidenced by works. By placing the kingdom inheritance firmly in the future, we do not play down activity, accountability, maturity of faith in the present. A father disciples his son for inheritance of the family estate throughout his life. He wants to ensure his character is eligible to inherit such large dwellings and responsibility. He will encourage and discipline his son throughout the years to ensure he is a fit heir. Blessings now point to ultimate blessings then. Judgment now points to ultimate judgment then. 
Blessings, healings, the Holy Spirit's deposit now, or we could say an allowance now, should not be confused with inheritance then. Anything given now is for the purposes of coaching to ready a person to receive the inheritance. An attempt to receive kingdom inheritance now is akin to the prodigal son. This is the age in which we are called to take the path of the cross. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. It's personal. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Again, it is not judgment by works. Their actions are evidence of their rebellious hearts toward the shepherd. Jesus sits facing the temple as he will then on a throne to judge. As he gestures to the sheep on his right, he points to the direction of the golden gate, entrance to the temple and kingdom. As he gestures to the goats on his left, he is pointing to Gehenna, the valley south of the old city. This very valley will be filled with fire and sulphur from the springs of Sheol. Who you follow now determines who you follow then. They followed the beast and his false prophet, and so they will follow his path left of Jesus down to the lake. And perhaps in Spartan fashion, an angel will kick them alive into the fiery pit. This is Jerusalem. Forever burning, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, and the smoke that rises will be seen for many miles as a warning and a wonder of praise that justice has been established in all the earth. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You did not do it to me. You hunted me down. You persecuted me. It's personal. These judgments determine two people groups with distinct characteristics destined for distinct destinations, the wicked, the slothful, the foolish, the worthless, the faithful, the wise, the diligent, the good. There will be no gray areas. Inherit the kingdom or inherit Gehenna. He will settle accounts with every Jew and he will settle accounts with every Gentile. It is comforting and sobering. Are we living in light of judgment? Now we are left with only rightful citizens in the land of Israel, with its present king, the kingdom can be inaugurated. The restoration of Israel, restoration to a pre-flood world with Edenic conditions. Then everyone who survives of all the nations shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is our hope. There is a great reset coming. They have no idea who will be doing the resetting. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In closing then, adding to part one's list, preparation for the coming king looks like mission that includes diligent preparation, physically and spiritually. Mission that includes diligent stewardship, 
chiefly of responsibilities. And above all, mission that is faithful to God's purposes for Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us as your sons and daughters to go out encouraged that you are with us, to be faithful Jews and faithful Gentiles, sobered and confident that all accounts will be settled. With watchfulness and readiness, may we arrive at 1,335 days and be blessed and rest and stand in our allotted place at the end of the days. May we labour responsibly and diligently manage the little now in training to receive much then. May we be generous with provisions for such a time of opportunity to witness of your grace and mercy. May the Holy Spirit be poured into our vessels to send us out bold and certain in sound. In the drowning noise of the world, help us to hear and learn the distinct voice of the Good Shepherd. Grant us discernment, Father, in these years to come. Thank you for these instructions as reassurance, as warning, as practical and spiritual guidance. May we share in your destiny to the cross and the kingdom. May we share in your inheritance. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised that on that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the lord and water the valley of shittim and judah shall be inhabited forever and jerusalem to all generations for the lord will dwell in zion for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever in your name jesus yeshua maranatha